loving sai ram and greetings from prashanti nilayam this is the 10th talk in the series veda walk through an effort of mine to communicate to you the spirit that pervades the vedas it is also my last talk in this series today i would like to take you far away from life mantras and all that and try to say something about awareness and consciousness you might have heard the phrase satchit anand roughly it means truth consciousness and bliss that is how god is sometimes described in other words at the abstract and absolute level god is also described as pure consciousness or absolute consciousness now what exactly is this consciousness what has it got to do if at all with creation what does science have to say if anything about this consciousness these are some of the questions that i would like to address in this talk but before i do so i must make it perfectly clear that there is no need whatsoever to know the answer to any of these questions if one wants to merge with god our bhakti would in no way be enhanced if we know something about these aspects that i wish to talk about in this talk on the other hand it does help us to appreciate how deep was the understanding of the ancient seers who were in quest of god i feel that in this day and age when people are always asking all sorts of questions it might be useful to put creation itself against the background of pure consciousness or absolute consciousness as god is sometimes referred to that you might say is my motivation for this talk I shall start by stating a fact that I am sure you are already aware of namely that our universe is made up of two entities matter and energy matter is tangible we can touch it and we can also see it sometimes when the material object is too small to be seen with the naked eye we can see it using an optical microscope or even an electron microscope matter has mass which can be measured energy on the other hand is intangible when it is latent it becomes manifest only when it changes its form for example a rock sitting on the top of a mountain has a lot of potential energy every high school student knows this but nobody can see this potential energy although one can calculate how much gravitational potential energy the rock on the mountain top has however if the rock is pushed down the potential energy gets converted into kinetic energy and the effects of this transformation can be seen as well as measured similarly it is often said that a lot of energy is locked up within an atom indeed but atomic energy that is latent cannot be seen however when the energy that is locked up in the atom is released then the effects generated by that release can be seen By the way this is what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki I am mentioning all this just to convey that until about 100 years ago physicists used to think that matter is matter and energy is energy and that these two are distinct all that changed in the year 1905 and the man who changed this view of matter and energy was Albert Einstein Albert Einstein was at that time a young man of about 
He was employed in the Swiss patent office and since his official work was not heavy, Einstein spent a lot of time investigating many difficult problems of physics. He published three epoch-making papers that year, which is why the year 2005 has been designated by the United Nations as the International Year of Physics. One of the three seminal papers Einstein wrote then is on the special theory of relativity. And one offshoot of this special theory is the famous equation E equals mc squared. Of course, this equation is so famous that even the general public know about it. The equation is actually very simple, but it discloses a profound truth. As Einstein himself said in a public lecture, this equation says that both what we call matter and what we call energy are one and the same thing. There is an underlying unity behind this apparent duality of matter and energy. It's amazing that God reminds us of universality even in the world of physics. Okay, there is matter and energy in the universe and though they might appear to be distinct entities, they are really one and the same thing. Further, matter can be converted into energy and energy can be converted into matter. So what? That is the point I wish to take up next. But before I do that, I ought to draw your attention to a fact you already know. Namely, that matter in the universe can be of two distinct types, insentient and sentient. Insentient means no life, sentient means having life. There is a specific reason why I am making this distinction. An entity with life is aware that it exists. To make the point clear, let me consider a stone and say a frog. The stone exists, you and I can see it. But the stone does not know that it exists. You might say, this is an utterly trivial statement. How on earth can a stone know it exists? It does not have life. Yes, that is true. But the point is that the frog, which has life, knows it exists. It is aware of its existence. The frog has self-awareness, while the stone does not. And that is the point I am trying to make. Self-awareness is a remarkable gift that living beings possess. And we humans never even think of it. We take it so much for granted that we hardly realize that we possess this wonderful gift of self-awareness. You might say, okay, living beings have self-awareness, so what? Let me take up that point next. The question now is, where from did this self-awareness come? Is it related to matter or to energy? Can it be described by any equation of physics? Did it suddenly pop up from nowhere when life first appeared on earth? Or has it been latent in the universe in some mysterious form right from the time the universe came into existence? I must tell you at this juncture that few scientists publicly discuss such issues. A handful of scientists have no doubt wondered about such issues, but the mainstream physicists that is to say 99.9999% of scientists simply ignore such questions. They know they cannot get any definitive answers and cannot publish any papers on this topic in the standard scientific journals. As you might know, these are days 
of publish or perish and most scientists leave such questions severely alone however the questions do remain and i wish to consider them and air some views about them the first thing i would like to point out in this context is that self awareness is part of our ability to have experiences many things we know come to us from experience let us take a simple thing like taste taste you will agree is a matter of experience we are able to have the experience of taste because the blessed lord has been kind enough to give us taste buds let us say that we put a small piece of sugar in the mouth it would of course taste sweet everyone in the world irrespective of race and religion would swear that sugar is sweet you might argue what is the great surprise in that i am not saying there is anything surprising about sugar being sweet but have you ever wondered whether what you experience about sugar tasting sweet is the same thing as what x or y experiences there is an important point here experience is internal to a person and as a result there is no way of comparing the experiences of two persons on an objective basis it is true science can analyze sugar describe the molecular structure and all that but there is no meter or measuring instrument that science can ever come up with for measuring the experience of sweetness it's the same with self awareness science can say whether an entity is dead or alive but it cannot ever deal with any subjective experience we need not condemn or criticize science for that that is the way it is presently structured however practitioners of science should not feel high and mighty and look down upon people who wish to consider metaphysics that feeling of condescension is totally unwarranted but unfortunately it is present in many modern upstarts such arrogance flows from ego and is not the hallmark of a true scholar who is always quite humble okay so what is the point i have made with all these words just this firstly there are things that go beyond matter and energy secondly these subjects relate to domains beyond space and time which is the domain of science i hope you agree with my submissions what next well here is my next point let us ask where did all the matter we see around us and all the energy that presently fills the universe come from no problem in answering that question because science tells us that all this came from the initial big bang that gave birth to the universe i suppose you have heard of the big bang i have mentioned it in some of my talks for the present let me say that the term big bang is used to describe the event that signaled the birth of our universe about 14 billion years ago give or take a couple of billion years okay matter and energy now in the universe can be tracked back all the way to the big bang what about the mysterious entity that confers on us the capacity for self awareness and grants us also the ability to have experiences associated with the senses that is the ability to have the experience of sight sound taste feeling and smell is there a mysterious something beyond matter and energy that confers the ability to have internal experience where from did this ability come did it sort of evolve as the species evolved 
If so, how did this something beyond space and time originate suddenly during the life evolution process? Many questions there. I should at this juncture point out that science also is faced with some basic questions of a similar nature. Today, there is hardly any scientist worth the name who doubts the fact that our universe originated in the so-called Big Bang about 14 or so billion years ago. It is also agreed that space and time came into existence along with the Big Bang. This immediately raises questions like, where did the universe draw the big reserve of energy it started off with? Does the universe have, quote and unquote, a mother from which it was born? These are questions that are being actively considered by some cosmologists and there are also some theories concerning this matter. Interestingly, ancient Indian sages have also speculated on some of these questions and they have also spelt out their model of creation, if I might call it that. In essence, it all started with what I have referred to earlier as absolute consciousness. Remember that absolute consciousness is just another name for God and this particular name focuses on an aspect of God currently of interest to us. Okay, let us for a moment agree that everything started off from absolute consciousness. That is to say, the universe was created from absolute consciousness. Vedanta has given a broad brush outline of how one became many. That is the essence of creation, one becoming many. Absolute consciousness represents the ultimate oneness. From this oneness, by coming down many steps, diversification that is characteristic of creation eventually emerged. I shall not say anything more on this. Anyway, the details provided by Vedanta are quite sketchy. But this much I can do and that is to refer to Aurobindo who remarked that the energy of primal consciousness cascaded many steps before the universe was created. If I were to put that statement in words close to science, I would say that a part of the infinite energy latent and resident in absolute consciousness went through many steps of transformation before the energy deposit for the Big Bang became available. I don't know for sure what precisely Aurobindo meant, but my own surmise is that this cascading down of energy many steps may perhaps be compared to potential energy becoming kinetic energy and then heat energy. Once the tiny bit of energy that peeled off from the latent energy of absolute consciousness became available for the Big Bang, the Big Bang occurred and thereafter the universe evolved the way science has described for us. I want you to appreciate an important point here. Vedanta does not in any way contradict modern science, especially the latter's reconstruct of the origin of the universe and its subsequent evolution. As far as the scenario preceding the Big Bang is concerned, science is still speculating and I am not sure if any of the speculations of science can ever be proved. This means that if scientists dismiss Vedanta's picture of the pre-Big Bang scenario as mere speculation, then they are doing no better. I wonder whether you have been able to catch what I have been trying to drive at all along. Basically it is this. First, there is in living beings a unique capacity called consciousness. 
Secondly, this consciousness is not the same stuff as matter and energy are. Thirdly, consciousness must have been present right from the time our universe came into existence as some kind of a cosmic background. There are a few other points I would like to make about consciousness and its role in evolution. But before that, I would like to address one important question. You might ask, is there any scientific proof concerning the existence of consciousness? In other words, is consciousness in any manner accessible to science? The answer is yes. It all goes back to a man called Robert Young of Princeton University in America, who got involved in the scientific investigation of paranormal phenomena almost by accident. This is how he himself describes it, and I quote, My formal training is that of an engineer and applied physicist, and the bulk of my research has been concerned with aerospace science. In 1978, I was requested by one of our very best students to supervise a study of psychic phenomena. Although I had no previous experience, professional or personal, I agreed. My initial oversight role in this project led to a degree of personal involvement with it and that to a growing bemusement to the extent that by the time the student graduated, I was persuaded that this was a legitimate field for a high technologist to study and that I would enjoy continuing to do so. End of quote. So that was how Robert Jan began to study parapsychic phenomena. Jan, though interested in the subject, started off as a skeptic. However, he said to himself, let me not dismiss it just because I personally do not believe in this stuff. Instead, I shall try out some experiments and let the experiments decide for me. Jan must be congratulated for his bold and objective attitude to paranormal phenomena. To cut a long story short, Jan started his experiments and found, much to his surprise, that there seemed to be something beside matter and energy. Jan was not too eager to accept his findings, and so he made his subsequent experiments more and more rigorous with tight controls and all that, and every time he was confronted with the same finding. Slowly and reluctantly, Jan came to accept that mind and matter could interact, and he hypothesized that this interaction occurred via consciousness. I shall come to that a little later, but for now, let me give you a brief glimpse of Jan's experiment. Jan actually performed many experiments, but the most important of them was concerned with mind-machine interaction. Here is a brief description of that experiment. Jan first built a machine called the Random Event Generator. This machine basically produces a series of time pulses occurring at random instants of time. There are rigorous tests to check if the output of the machine is truly random or not. Having built the machine, Jan then had a volunteer sit for a considerable period of time before the random event generator and constantly think, Hey machine, stop being random. Hey machine, stop being random. You would think that this is a pretty crazy thing to do. But Jan's idea was this. If the person is willfully trying to change the behavior of the machine by sheer thought process, would the machine respond? The scientist in Jan told him it would not, 
but the investigator in Yan said, wait for the result before deciding. Okay, so what did Rob Robert Yan find? He found that many volunteers who were highly focused did manage to disturb the machine and make it depart from its usual random behavior. It took a long time for Yan to be convinced about this, but when he was, he started devoting all his time to the interaction of mind with matter. After decades of intensive research, Yan came to the conclusion that consciousness was a field rather like the electromagnetic field and gravitational field, very familiar to physicists. Jan also published many papers on what he describes as the quantum theory of the consciousness field. How much acceptance is there of Jan's idea in the scientific community? Not much, I am afraid. To start with, not many have bothered to study Jan's writings. Among those who have, the friends of Jan shake their head and mutter, Poor Robert, whatever happened to him? Why is he wasting his time doing this kind of research instead of the kind he is good at? The others who know him but are not so kindly disposed say something nasty to the effect, this guy Robert Yan has gone bananas. The neutral community are busy severely attacking his experiments as lacking in rigor in statistical analysis and dismiss the entire experiments of Robert Yan as pseudoscience or junk science. By the way, many experiments even in mainstream physics have been buried on the ground of lack of statistical rigor. Often, especially when it comes to unconventional areas, many an experiment is laid to rest with the obituary. Here lies a victim of pseudoscience who died due to lack of statistical rigor. I am not sure if Robert Yan's experiments lack statistical rigor. But that is the way many critics dismiss his experiments. However, all this has not stopped a brave few from following the wonderful lead of Robert Yan to make their own studies. And many have, with their own variations of Yan's experiments, concluded that there is such a thing as consciousness based on science, mind you. I suppose all this might sound quite amusing to believers in consciousness. After all, have you not seen people getting cured from near-death illness through sheer prayer? How can prayer that originates in the subtle mind and even more subtle heart affect the biochemistry of a sick body? There must be some mind-matter interaction, must there be not? I believe, as does Jan, that this interaction occurs through the intervention of the consciousness field. Are there any signatures in the real physical world of the presence of this consciousness? That is to say, signatures in mainstream physics? I believe there is a very strong one, though people don't make, recognize it. And that is what I shall now refer to. Between 1925 and 1930, physics went through a great revolutionary period when an entirely new basis for physics was discovered. I am referring to the discovery of quantum mechanics. Prior to quantum mechanics, we had what is called classical mechanics, to which Newton gave a start. Classical mechanics is essentially deterministic. If a bullet is fired at a certain velocity and in a particular direction, we can, using the rules of classical mechanics, calculate accurately the entire trajectory of the bullet. For about 300 years or so, 
classical mechanics went from success to success but when the atom and its structure were discovered in the early part of the 20th century it was found that classical mechanics did not deliver the goods in the atomic domain the results calculated using classical mechanics were drastically different from what experiments showed and it seemed as if a new mechanics was needed especially in the microscopic world of atoms and in a few short years brilliant minds came up with precisely what was needed and an entirely new set of rules namely quantum mechanics was discovered at first people were greatly thrilled by this new mechanics because it worked so wonderfully well at that stage i'm talking of about 70 80 years ago quantum mechanics was simply regarded as a remarkable new tool few bothered about what exactly it meant but there were those brave souls who ventured beyond and started asking wondering about the philosophy underlying the new quantum mechanics two prominent scientists in this group were niels bohr of denmark and albert einstein bohr gave brilliant interpretations while einstein kept on shaking his head in disagreement in fact bohr and einstein had public debates in many conferences with bohr vigorously arguing in support of quantum mechanics and einstein stoutly opposing it now why on earth did einstein have such strong misgivings about quantum mechanics especially when it works so beautifully to explain things that classical mechanics absolutely failed to there was a deep philosophical reason behind einstein's objections you see quantum mechanics implied that events happen not in a deterministic manner as classical theory demanded but in a probabilistic manner this idea was totally unacceptable to einstein it's interesting that einstein dethroned newtonian mechanics which was classical but in a sense even einstein's relativistic mechanics was classical being an exotic extension of newton's mechanics einstein's mechanics therefore did not have any room for random behavior so strong was einstein's objection that he and his good friend niels bohr argued vehemently for many years in fact einstein would start by describing an imaginary experiment he used the german word gedanken experiment which means an imaginary experiment a word that has since become a part of physics vocabulary einstein would describe the experiment and argue how this thought experiment violated quantum mechanics bohr would then get up clear his throat <clears throat> and say ha ah, but you see professor you overlooked this point bohr would then go on to show that einstein's reasoning was flawed and that therefore his objections were not correct at one point einstein simply brushed aside all of bohr's objections with the word god does not play dice meaning quantum mechanics cannot really be true this went on for about 3 years or so until in a famous encounter einstein came up with yet another gedanken experiment the mother of them all this one looked ironclad and invincible so it seemed when einstein argued but then bohr got up and pointed out a subtle but fatal flaw einstein was demolished he had to yield there was no choice but he was not convinced about the credibility of quantum mechanics 
He agreed that quantum mechanics appeared to work and was perhaps a good set of working rules, but not the ultimate truth in physics. Echoing his feelings, Einstein said, Subtle is the Lord, but malicious he is not. This saying of Einstein as well as the other one that God does not play dice or quoted often and in fact in Princeton the saying subtle is the Lord is, I believe, engraved in a prominent place. By the way, I should also mention that though they had strong differences of opinion on scientific matters, Einstein and Bohr remained good friends till the very end. I recall attending a lecture by Bohr in Bombay in 1959, I think. When Bohr, to- Bohr talked about his debate with his friend Einstein, at that time in 1959, Bohr was well over 70, around 76, 77, or something like that. And we could hardly make out what he said. There was a strong accent. And to make matters worse, the ha- hall acoustics was terrible. Also, I did not know much about quantum mechanics then. And what Bohr said went way above my head. But this I do remember. At one point, Bohr simply broke down and started to sob like a child. It seemed as if he was upset about having to vanquish his dear friend Einstein in an argument. Mind you, the debate was then about 40 years old, and yet Bohr could not bear to think of the hurt he had caused his friend. Now, why am I mentioning all this? What connection does all this have with Vedanta? That is what I shall consider next. You see, Einstein was not entirely done. The Einstein-Bohr debates took place just before 1930 or so. Soon after that, Hitler came to power in Germany and Einstein, being a Jew, left for America because Jews had no place in Hitler's Germany. Einstein went to Princeton and there, in 1936, he published a paper in which he proposed yet another Gedanken experiment which revealed, according to Einstein, a major internal contradiction in quantum mechanics. Bohr was in Denmark at that time, 1936. He saw the paper and thought deeply about it. He then wrote a paper, rebutting Einstein's paper, which by the way is referred to by physicists as the EPR paper, because along with Einstein there were two other authors, Podolsky and Rosen. Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen, that's what EPR means. Now, this time, Bohr did not concede the debate. He had, of course, seen Bohr's paper. Why did Einstein not concede the debate? Because if one took Bohr seriously, it meant that relativity would be violated in the EPR experiment and that signals could travel with infinite speed. But that was impossible. And so Einstein politely said, Sorry, Bohr, this is unacceptable. Don't tell me that signals can travel faster than light. You know that it is impossible. How then do you expect me to accept this argument and say quantum mechanics works? Bohr's point was, I know there is a problem there, but I am convinced that quantum mechanics is true and nature must be having a mysterious mechanism of taking care of your objection. That was in 1936. There matters stood till the 70s. People had almost forgotten the Bohr-Einstein debate and only philosophers worried about it. But then one fine day, thanks to the remarkable advances in technology, many scientists, particularly in France, began to actually conduct 
experiments that were once thought to be just thought experiments or gadanken experiments and what do these scientists particularly in france find they found that bohr was in fact right in other words notwithstanding einstein's firm faith in relativity coming to the rescue quantum mechanics actually worked but then this raised a deep philosophical question einstein said that if quantum mechanics works then it means that signals can travel faster than light but that's not possible however scientists had not demonstrated that quantum mechanics was actually working even in the epr experiment did that imply that something was fast traveling faster than light did this mean that relativity was out the pundits thought about it all and finally said not quite there is actually no signal traveling in this experiment and so there is no question of any violation of relativity what's happening in the french experiment is a strange and subtle connectivity than that linked everything on a global scale if one ignored this global connectivity and analyze the experiment looking at things piecemeal then one would have to invoke signals traveling faster than light and all that but if one kept subtle global connections in mind then there is really no contradiction with relativity because there are no there is no room for signals this is what the experts concluded after examining every argument let me restate their findings because they are very important basically quantum philosophers were now saying listen folks if we ignore the subtle global connectivity then it would seem that relativity is being violated in the epr experiment that is because the apparatus of the experiment appears to be made up of distinct pieces and signals would have to travel from one distinct entity of the apparatus to another distinct entity of the apparatus at a speed exceeding that of light but if we bring in global connectivity into the picture then there is only one entity and so there is no need for any signals to travel from here to there and hence also no violation of relativity quantum mechanics is thus safe and einstein's apprehensions are all misplaced i know all this might sound a bit mysterious but please bear with me for a moment meanwhile listen to what gary zukov says in his book the dancing woolly masters he says and a quote the philosophical implications of quantum mechanics is that all things in, in the universe including us that appear to exist independently are actually parts of one all encompassing organic pattern end of quote professor chu of california puts it more crisply as follows the only individual is the whole universe end of quote if you think about it this is an amazing statement coming from a physicist what chu is saying is that there are not many but just one and this oneness is conferred upon entities that our senses perceive as many by a mysterious something that appears to be beyond space and beyond time quantum mechanics would fail if there were a real disconnect because then relativity would come into the picture and scuttle quantum mechanics however there appears to be a subtle underlying oneness thanks to which there is no disconnect relativity thus is does not enter the picture and quantum mechanics works fine all this is a hand waving explanation no doubt but it conveys the gist of the rigorous argument that philosophers have made even if you have not followed all that i have said just keep this in mind 
the most philosophical part of modern science is telling us that what we normally perceive as distinct and many is just really one. For normal purposes, we may treat these as distinct entities different from each other. But at a grand and global level, they are all apparently different manifestations of just only one. The so-called pieces of this one actually have an underlying universal connectivity and there is something beyond space and time that confers this universal connectivity. Now why is this something that confers oneness beyond space and time? Because if it were bound by space and time, it would have to respect relativity. But this mysterious something seems to be exempt from relativity, which can happen only if it is beyond space and time. This is a remarkable finding of modern science, and yet very few people seem to be bothered about its philosophical foundations. I maintain that this mysterious something that bestows universal connectivity of oneness is nothing but what we call consciousness. And clearly, consciousness is beyond space and time. This raises many questions, like, was there consciousness all along right from the birth of the universe, or did it manifest only when living beings came into existence? According to me, the answer is simple. Consciousness has always been there, indeed even before the birth of the universe. And according to Vedanta, the universe actually originated from primal consciousness. Okay, so what role did consciousness play, if at all, during the evolution of the universe? I believe that right from the moment of the Big Bang, consciousness was present like an invisible backdrop against which all evolution took place. This prompts the question, does that mean that inert matter has consciousness? I would think that the French experiments that settle the EPR issue suggest that inert matter is also pervaded by consciousness. Remember, EPR refers to the problems posed by Einstein in 1936, which were settled in 1970 or so by the French experimenters. Devotees might at this point recall the famous story of the weeping saris. No doubt Hislop has narrated the story, but I shall quote for you Swami's version of the same incident. This is what Bhagavan says, and I quote, I asked that a hundred saris be brought so that I could select some for distribution to the women workers at Anantapur who were helping to build the Satyasai College there. I selected 96 and asked them to return four to the shop. Later, when I passed the table on which the four discarded saris were kept, it was noticed that the cardboard box which contained the four saris was dripping tears. The saris inside were weeping that they could not get appreciation from me. Hislop was standing by the side of the table. Yes, the Saris had shed tears. End of quote. Through this remarkable incident, Swami taught Hislop that even so-called insentient or inanimate matter has consciousness or awareness. This brings me to the central point about the role of consciousness in evolution. I believe the following. 1. Right from the moment our universe was born, Consciousness was always present as a backdrop or background, whatever you wish to call it. 2. Pace and time expanded against this subtle, primordial, invisible backdrop. In a sense, this is like the ether of classical physics, 
which by the way is a concept that was discarded over a century ago. I am nevertheless mentioning the ether merely as an analogy for the benefit of those who have studied classical physics. The ether of classical physics was supposed to be weightless and penetrate everything in the universe. That is to say it was all pervading. I believe that that description is eminently applicable to the backdrop of consciousness pervading the universe. 4. It must be noted that though space and time as we know it came into existence only when the universe we live in was born, consciousness was always there and it will always be. That is why consciousness is God. The Vedas state this via the declaration Pragyanam Brahma. 5. Evolution takes place against the backdrop of the curtain of consciousness that pervades the universe. When I say evolution, I mean both the evolution of the entire physical universe as well as the evolution of living beings on our earth, which has been going on for about 3 to 3.5 billion years. For comparison, our earth is about 4.5 billion years old, while the universe itself is about 14.5 billion years old. 6. Now on the earth, we have both living and non-living beings or sentient and insentient matter. Consciousness pervades all. There is no exception. 7. However, there is an important corollary that I must add. Consciousness does not manifest in equal measure in all the entities on earth. What this means is the following. Firstly, consciousness appears to manifest in one of two possible states. The passive state and the active state. The so-called insentient materials or entities, consciousness is present in the passive state, while in the sentient beings, it is present in the active state. I must add that no book on Vedanta makes this statement. These remarks are based on my own reflections and my training as a physicist. It is what we in the trade would refer to as a plausible model. 8. Based on this plausible model, I submit that life manifests when consciousness in a being makes the transition from a passive state to an active state. Take a seed. It may be lying around for a long time, but when planted and watered, somehow, most mysteriously, life manifests. Again, take a fetus in a mother's womb. For the first few weeks, it is just a growth inside the mother. But then, sometime later, the fetus mysteriously starts having a life of its own, distinct from that of the mother. 9. What causes the transition of consciousness in the fetus from the passive to the active state? I do not know, but I would not be surprised if it is associated with some kind of a crossing of a threshold. There is a critical point crossing which consciousness appears to fire and become active. By the way, nature has many examples of such thresholds. For example, when water is cooled to a very low temperature, say minus 30 degrees Celsius, it becomes ice. Warm the ice and when the temperature becomes zero degrees, ice melts into liquid water. I would imagine that the appearance of life in an insentient piece of matter happens when some threshold is crossed. I do not know what that threshold is, but as a physicist, I believe it is plausible to think of such a threshold crossing. Incidentally, death would be a threshold crossing in the reverse direction. 10. Next, the question of how much of this consciousness is present in the various living beings and what exactly it does. Here again, I shall offer a plausible picture. 
I believe that amongst living creatures, the role of consciousness increases even as the sense organs evolve and develop. What I mean is the following. In the lowest form of living creatures, there are no eyes, ears, etc. the way we know them. Yet, these creatures do have some sense of awareness that they exist and of the external world surrounding them. And that is how they adjust to their environment. In such creatures, I would imagine, the manifestation of active consciousness would be at a very low level. Let us now go up the evolution ladder and come to say monkeys from which we are all supposed to be descended. I would say that active consciousness in monkeys would be fairly high, but restricted just to the cognition of the external world. 12. We now come to human beings. Here, consciousness really blossoms. You see, in the case of animals, their capacity for being conscious is restricted to the awareness of the external world. This capacity to be aware of the external world is needed for survival and that is why God has given that capacity. Humans too have that capacity for they also need to survive. But thanks to the power of the human brain, which incidentally is also a blessing of God, humans can not only see and experience the external world, but can even manipulate it. For example, man explores for oil that is underground and then pumps it out, sometimes even from under the sea. 13. But humans score over animals in another important respect also. Unlike animals, humans can see inside. They have this special capability or capacity. It's a different matter that not all humans make use of this ability. But the fact is that humans do have this blessing of looking inside. 14. What does this looking inside mean? It means being able to resonate with the heart and develop feelings of love, compassion and forbearance. It means being able to realize that behind creation there is a creator. Humans alone have this ability to be conscious of the creator. And that is why Swami often tells us that human birth is a rare blessing. Of course, it ceases to be a blessing if one insists on being a slave to the senses. I hope I have managed to convey to you that as the universe evolved, and as li living beings on earth evolve, so has the visible manifestation of consciousness. This is the right place for me to quote George Wald, a Harvard scientist, a professor there actually, who won the Nobel Prize. He says, and I quote, The idea came to me quite lately as a new and extraordinary idea, both tempting and repellent, since it shocked my scientific sensibilities. Then I realized with some embarrassment that many others had been there before, not only mystics, but also a few thoughtful physicists. It is the view that this universe breeds life and consciousness because consciousness is its source, because the universe is ultimately made of this mind stuff. What we recognize as the material universe, the universe of space-time and elementary particles and energies, is actually an avatar, the materialization of primal consciousness. In that case, there is no waiting for consciousness to arise. It's always there, at the beginning and at the end. What we wait for in the evolution of life is only the culminating avatar, the emergence of self-conscious bodies that can articulate consciousness, that can give it a voice, culture, literature and art and science. End of quote. 
This is an amazing statement coming from a Harvard Nobel Prize winner. Erwin Schrodinger, himself a Nobelist and one of the founders of quantum mechanics, also fin finally ended up with Advaitam. So you see, primal consciousness that the ancient rishis cognized in their meditation is where serious thinkers of modern times also end up. This is another way of saying that God is the ultimate reality and that great thinkers of all ages have accepted that. In passing, I have to draw your attention to an important fact that most of us miss. You know, this universe is vast, absolutely vast. It holds a billion, billion stars, not billion, billion stars, 10 to the power of 18 or more, like our sun, and has plenty of empty space to spare. Among these billions and billions of stars, only a very tiny fraction of stars have planets. And of this tiny fraction of stars that have a planet, one or more planets, an even tinier fraction may have a planet like our Earth, suitable for supporting life. In other words, if at all life exists elsewhere in the universe, it must be a very rare occurrence. Now, why am I mentioning all this? For a very good reason. You see, if you compare a dead planet like, say, Mars with the Earth, you would find an incredible variety on Earth, which you would not find in any other planet in the solar system, or for that matter, any planet anywhere not having life. It is only life that endows Earth with so much beauty and diversity. Just look at the plants and trees. What a wonderful variety we have, from grass to redwood trees. And then take the fishes, birds and animals. What a wonderful and colorful variety there is. Have you seen, ever seen pictures of coral formations under the sea? How wonderful they are. Wherever we look, there is a special beauty not found on planets without life. There is a wonderful glory of the manifestation of consciousness of God everywhere on this living earth. And this is what George Wald refers to as an avatar of consciousness. And the crowning glory is the human being who has the special capacity to recognize God. But alas, man does not recognize either the presence of God all around him or the presence of God within him. That is why God the formless has to don a human form and educate man as he is doing right now. I hope I have motivated you to spend some time contemplating on this thing called consciousness and see it in the larger perspective that our Vedic seers always saw. Such a perception is more necessary now than ever before, considering the dangers facing humanity and the planet Earth. I think I have said enough. This, let me remind you once again, is the last and the concluding talk in my long series entitled The Veda Walkthrough. I have been doing musings for over two years now and this is the first time I have attempted a long serial like this. I hope it has been of some use to you. I am happy to announce that I have been able to persuade a reputed scholar of Vedic mantras to help us all in the Prashanti Digital Studio to prepare a follow-through series to the present one in which the mantras would be chanted and their meanings explained. I don't know about you, but I personally am eagerly looking forward to the series because this gentleman whom I mentioned is really good and knows a lot about the ancient Vedic tradition. Well, that's all I have to say for the present. And I thank you for being with me throughout this walkthrough series. I hope it has benefited you as much as it has done 
benefited me. God bless. In Jai Sai Ram.